If you have not opened your Bibles to Psalm 34, please do so. Uh, And the title of my message this morning is Rescue Story. And we love a good rescue story, don't we? Especially when there is a happy ending, especially when it turns out for the best. And here's what rescue stories do. They, They do two things in particular. One, they are a moment for celebration and praise, that, that someone who was in a dire circumstance has been rescued, and, and on the other side of that, we celebrate. We are excited. We are glad. We rejoice in that. So it's a cause for celebration. Rescue stories are also an opportunity for a lesson. They provide an important takeaway, some lesson learned about the events that can be used later on. There is wisdom to be gained in any good rescue story. So for example, how many of you remember the dramatic cave rescue in Thailand in 2018? Not too long ago. 12 boys, ages 11 through 16, along with their soccer coach, were trapped in a cave for around 18 days before finally being rescued. And what's, what's incredible is this rescue operation was massive. It involved as many as 10,000 people, including more than 100 divers, scores of rescue workers, representatives from about 100 government agencies, 900 police officers, and 2,000 soldiers. 10 police helicopters, seven ambulances, more than 700 diving cylinders, and the pumping of more than 1 billion liters of water from the cave. All of that went in to rescuing these boys and their coach. And it was successful. It was successful. They rescued these boys. They all survived. And so understandably, the the success warranted praise. There was great celebration throughout the world. We watched with bated breath for over two weeks, and we celebrated the, the rescue. There was praise for those overseeing the massive logistical planning. I mean, think of just all that went into rescuing, all the piece, moving pieces that took place, those who were overseeing it all. There was praise for their skill. There was also praise for the divers who risked their lives to save these boys. This was no small task, extremely dangerous. These divers were nothing short of heroes. And then if you read sort of the takeaways from this event, there's been article after article that has noted that the operation was a model of cooperation and leadership. It was a master class of coordination of the different agencies and communities and resources that were all aimed at this single goal. The, The government bureaucracy that can so often handcuff things on the ground was almost non-existent. These divers and rescuers had all the resources that they need and were free to work out the plan they saw was best. And then also, the level-headedness of the boy's soccer coach was noted. That in the midst of these dire circumstances, he kept them calm and relaxed and taught them how to find a drinkable water and to um, sort of ration their food and ration the, the batteries and the power and their flashlight. And so his thinking, his leadership was a lesson in what to do when you're in a circumstance like that. No doubt it was because of his leadership the boys stayed alive long enough to be found. And so there's so much that could be learned from this event, so many successful aspects of this rescue, so many takeaways from it. When we come to Psalm 34, Psalm 34 is a poem, is a song that both celebrates rescue, but also declares to us some important takeaways, some some important truths about where we can find rescue. 
So we read at the beginning of Psalm 34, there's actually a subscript. Now, not every psalm gives you a context for why it was written, but Psalm 34 does. This is what it tells us. Concerning David, when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech, who drove him out and he departed. So Psalm 34 was written in response to this experience of rescue that David had. And you can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. And here, here's a summary of the story. So David, who had been anointed king, but yet was to take the throne, and who had many military successes, was on the run for his life. King Saul was jealous of him. He hated him, and he was coming after his life. So David flees Israel and goes on the run. And one of the first places he landed is with the king of Gath. Now, now here's, here's the challenge with that. So the king of Gath, Gath was, in, was part of the Philistine empire. The Philistines were the sworn enemies of Israel. And also, if you're familiar with the story of David, David had this encounter with a really tall dude from Gath. And the result of that encounter was David hitting him with a rock and taking off his head with a sword. And so if you're from Gath, you're probably not a big fan of David. And yet here he is landing in Gath at the, in the palace of the king. And word starts to get around, hey, isn't this the David who, who was anointed king? Isn't this the David who they sing about that Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands? Isn't this our sworn enemy who has had many military victories against us? And as word starts swirling, David rightfully so starts fearing for his life. They know who I am. They are probably going to kill me. So this is what David does to protect himself. Start to act like he's insane. And so you read in the text, he starts kind of scribbling weird stuff on the wall, making these different carvings and, and sort of just acting weird. He starts like drooling from his mouth, making himself look like he is literally insane. And so when the officials bring him to the king of Gath, the king of Gath's like, hey, don't we have enough crazy people around here? Why are you bringing this guy to me? Get him out of here. And so David's deception works and he flees for his life. And it is out of that encounter that David pens Psalm 34. And in the opening verses, he declares this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. David is effusive in his praise to the Lord. I'll bless the Lord. His praise is never going to leave my mouth. I'm going to boast. I'm going to brag about the Lord. And he wants everybody to be in on this. He says, let us exalt the Lord together. Join me in this praise. I don't want to do this by myself. Everyone else, join me in this praise. Let's exalt him together. David has no intention of the celebration just being something he does by himself. He wants all the people to celebrate the greatness of the Lord. And why is David so excited? What has him continually praising the Lord and boasting in the Lord? Well, he tells us in verses four through six, I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his trouble. David is effusive in his praise because the Lord rescued him. Hey, think about this. David had to devise some sort of deception, some, some, some sort of means to get out of this precarious situation. And so I'm not sure why David decides his best route is to act like he's crazy, but he decides to do that. And it works. 
But what David sees is behind all of that is the hand of the Lord. Behind all of that activity, yes, David, David took action, but behind that, it was the Lord who rescued him. David realized that his plan was not going to work unless the Lord had his hand upon him. So David praises the Lord for rescuing him. No doubts in those moments where David was afraid for his life, he cried out. He says, I cried out to the Lord. The Lord heard me and answered me. David cried out. He sought the Lord. He's, he went to the Lord for refuge. And David recognizes it was the Lord who rescued him. For that whole plan, crazy man plan to work, I mean, the Lord had to be in that. And he was. And so David praises the Lord. And then in verse 7, we see the takeaway. We see the truth that David experienced and he wants all of us to experience as well. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. So in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord speaks of a particular manifestation of God's presence. Sometimes it is an actual angel representing the presence of God that shows up. Other times, it's God's presence taking some sort of tangible form. So we read in Exodus 3 that when Moses comes across the burning bush, it says that burning bush, the angel of the Lord was present in that burning bush. And so when David talks about the angel of the Lord encamps around him, he's talking about the presence of the Lord being with him. God's very presence is with me. And this word encamps is telling. It is important. David doesn't just use this term as a throwaway term. He's very particular about this term. The idea here of encamping is the idea of a military formation circling someone for protection. And this is, this is purposeful, and this is right, and this is good, because when we see the angel of the Lord show up in the Old Testament, most of the time, it is in the context of God about ready to go to war against his enemies on behalf of his people. When the angel of the Lord shows up to Moses, what does the angel tell? What does God tell Moses he's going to do? I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to go to war against the Egyptians. Later in Exodus, when it says the angel of the Lord takes the, the form of a cloud, what does the cloud do at the, the Red Sea? Goes behind Israel between the Egyptian army and Israel so they can cross the Red Sea, just as God is about to drop the sea on the army of Egypt. Later in Joshua, we see that the angel of the Lord shows up to Joshua just before God is going to overthrow Jericho. And then later in Scripture, we read about the angel of the Lord showing up to take out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers on behalf of God's people. So when David says the angel of the Lord camps around him, it's because he recognizes and he knows that God is there to fight for him. God is there to rescue him, to battle for him, to protect him. So David celebrates not just that God's there, but God is there to rescue and to fight. He surrounds him with protection. And he draws out this principle. God's presence surrounds, protects, fight for, and rescues those who fear him. And so here is the lesson, the takeaway from Psalm 34. This is what David wants all of us to recognize here is the point of his rescue story. The Lord rescues those who fear him. Like David celebrates this truth, the Lord rescues those who fear him. And then he goes and he starts to direct his attention to his audience. So it's as if it said, hey, let me tell you a story. And here's the takeaway of the story. The Lord rescues those who fear him. Now let me talk to you. Let me tell you about this rescue and how you can experience it. 
So in verse eight, the focus shifts from David telling a personal story to teaching. He says in verse eight, taste and see that the Lord is good. Hey, well, what do you do when you're, when you're out to dinner, maybe with your spouse or with a friend or a family member, and you, the thing you ordered is really, really good? What do you do? Hey, you got to try this. You got to taste this. See that this is good. And this is what David is doing. He's like, that, that, that rescue, that experience, that blessing, you need to taste this. You need to taste this. You need to experience this. You need to get in on the goodness of the Lord. He says, how happy is the person who takes refuge in him? You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack anything. Taste and see how happy is the person who takes refuge in the Lord. Taste and see how those who fear him lack nothing. Come on, get in, get in on this. Partake of this, experience this. But what does David mean? when he says, fear the Lord. He's, he's emphasizing the fear of the Lord here. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? Does it mean sort of walk around with this sort of anxious, fearful sense that, man, if I do something wrong, God is gonna strike me down? Is it walking in sort of this heavy coldness? Does David strike you as the type of person who's walking around cold and afraid? No, there is celebration here. There is joy here. Now, to be sure, to be sure, the fear of the Lord means that we are to have an awe and a reverence towards God. To, to fear the Lord is to acknowledge that God is God, that he's king. It's to acknowledge that he is the creator and that he holds all things in his hand, even our very lives. To fear the Lord is to acknowledge that he is all sovereign and all powerful over all things. See, the Lord is worthy of our fear. He's worthy of our awe and our reverence and our worship because he is that good and that glorious. He is high and he is exalted and we are but of dust. And so there is this sense where fear leads to an awe. But fear also means that we live in submission to God. It means that we submit our lives to his authority, to his truth. It means that our identity, our life, our meaning and purpose are all defined by him. He is the one who sets who we are and what we live for. He is the one who determines what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, what is true, what is beautiful. And we live under that. We submit our lives to that. We live for the glory and the honor and the worship of God. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And David spells this out for us in verses 11 through 14. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. So core to the fear of the Lord is turning from evil, turning away from evil, our mouths away from evil, our bodies, our lives away from evil, and turning towards what is good. We are to seek peace and pursue it. And the word for peace here, you may have heard, this is the word shalom. And the word shalom means more than just absence of conflict. It doesn't mean, hey, I'm just getting along with everybody. Shalom is this holistic peace. It's a picture of wholeness, of health, of goodness. And so those who fear the Lord, we turn from evil, 
but we also turn towards what is good. We honor what is good. We live for what is good. And we give our lives so that ourselves and others in our world would experience wholeness and flourishing. We care deeply about shalom. That is what it means to fear the Lord. And so, listen, the picture David paints here, it's not of people weighed down by guilt and fear and sort of this heaviness about them. And the Lord, if I'm going to mess up, God's going to strike me down. No, it's about a people who joyfully give themselves to what is good. They are so wrapped up in the goodness of God and they recognize he is good. They want to give themselves to what is good. And so David paints a picture here of blessing, of thriving, of flourishing, of people who are giving themselves to what is true and good and beautiful. And this brings blessing, brings blessing. And so David says, taste and see this. Get in on this. Fear the Lord and experience this goodness. But there's more to it, isn't there? I mean, we can talk about the good and the blessing that comes when we fear the Lord, when we go after what is good. We can talk about how that can bring flourishing to our lives. And we celebrate that. We want that. We pursue that. However, in the words of the great philosopher Rocky Balboa, <laughs> the world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. David puts it this way in Psalm 34, the righteous, or those who fear the Lord, have many adversities. David's not pulling any punches. David's not pie in the sky. David isn't off in la-la land about how hard life is. Listen, we, we live in a fallen, broken world. There's pain, there's suffering, there's loss, there's failure, there's sin, there's death. There's so much in this world that hurts deeply. And, and that's just for everybody. Just living, being human means you're going to experience that. You can't escape it. No matter how hard we try, you cannot escape this reality of how much life hurts. David understood this adversity. I mean, he was a man on the run. This man who had so many blessings, so many victories. I mean, the dude had everything. He was good looking, he was a poet, and he was a fighter. I mean, come on, that's like the trifecta every guy wants. And he was king on top of it. And he was on the run for his life. Dude lived in caves. Found himself having to act like a crazy man just to survive. Adversity, pain, hardship, difficulty. And listen, what David also emphasizes here in Psalm 34 is that if you fear the Lord, if you live for what is truly good, you're also going to face persecution. You're also going to face hardship from the world. The world will oppose you. So not just will you face the general suffering that we all face because we're human, but to fear the Lord means you're also going to experience extra opposition because you stand against this world and it's evil. Jesus made it very clear. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. Did they persecute Jesus? Yes. Are they going to persecute us? Yes. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Like It comes with the package when you fear the Lord. There's going to be hardships of all kinds, many adversities. So this blessing that comes from fearing the Lord. Look, it's not a get-out-of-suffering-free card. But it drives home the point even further. 
that the Lord rescues those who fear him. As David writes in verses 15 through 18, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. We will face hardship. We will face suffering. We will face pain. We will face disappointment. We will face loss. We will face degrees of opposition and persecution. But what do those who fear the Lord do in response? Cry out to the Lord. To, to fear the Lord in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of opposition, is to cry out to him, to seek him, to find refuge in him. It is to go to him in the midst of that pain and say, Lord, I need you. Rescue me. Help me. It is to do as David did when he, his life was on the line. Cry out to the Lord and cry out to the Lord knowing the Lord hears. The Lord answers. The Lord is not at a distance. He's not indifferent. No, he comes to his people with his presence to surround them, to encamp around them. The Lord rescues those who fear him. And listen, yes, we're not passive. David's example again shows us we're called to take action. But, but here's the hope in our action. When we do so from a place of fearing the Lord, trusting in him, faith in him, he empowers our actions. He empowers our lives. So we take action fearing the Lord in the power the Lord gives. That's our hope, church. The Lord rescues those who fear him. And so the question for you and I this morning are we tasting and seeing? Are we tasting and seeing the great rescue that comes from fearing the Lord? Are we tasting and seeing his goodness and his power and his faithfulness and his love when we cry out to him? Or are we missing out? Are we missing out because we're not walking in the fear of the Lord? So growing up, I was a very picky eater. My mom will tell you, very picky eater. And as I've gotten older, especially after getting married, I, I feel like I've grown in a lot. We're, you know, coffee and cereal, not going to happen. But, but there are a lot of other things that I am still trying to grow in, in my ability to, to expand my palate. And by God's grace, I have. And by the grace of my wife, I have. Well, one time, back when Mindy and I lived in, in Arlington, we were out at this restaurant with some friends, and someone ordered lamb and carrot hummus. And, and, and listen, hummus, uh, uh, you know, chickpeas, mushed up, you know, I'm not really a hummus person. But Mindy, she was like, you've got to try this. She did that thing. Taste and see this. This is so good. Taste it, taste it, taste it. And I was like, no. <laughs> not going to do it. Not refuse. I am not going to taste this. And so we, when we got home that night, we, we, were, we were kind of still sort of you know when you kind of like joke argue about something when you're married? And, and so we were kind of joke arguing about that. And, and, and we had also been traveling a lot at that time. And, and in our travels, we had kind of developed this thing of like, hey, come and, come and check this thing out. If we saw something that was really intriguing or something we wanted to share with the other person. And, and so Mindy looked at me and she's like, hey, what if I were to say to you, hey, come and check out this beautiful sunset. And you said, nah, not going to do it. I refuse to do it. You would be missing out on something great, right? She's like, this carrot lamb hummus was a sunset. 
it was a sunset. I was like, that's a good one right there. You got me on that one. So next time we went to this restaurant, got the, the lamb and carrot hummus, and I tried it. And she wasn't lying. It was good. I think it tasted like a sunset taste. It was <laughs> phenomenal. Listen, so often you and I, we miss out on the goodness of the Lord. Why? Because we refuse to walk in the fear of the Lord. We refuse to cry out to him when his goodness and his rescue and his love and his faithfulness are there for us to experience. And rather than tasting and seeing, what do we do? We try to control things for ourselves. In our pride, we try to control our things for ourselves. Self-sufficiency, self-reliance. No, I got this myself. Or maybe we're just fearful. We're fearful the Lord isn't going to show up. We're fearful that the Lord isn't good. And so we're going to do this in our own strength and our own power. Or even worse, sometimes we're just outright prideful. Like we reject the Lord outright and we're going to, I'm going to live my life on my terms doing what I want to do. If there's going to be any rescue, it's going to come from my hand and my hand alone. And friends, in all of that, in all of that, we miss out. We miss out on the goodness of the Lord. We miss out on his grace and his love and his presence and his comfort. And when we take matters into our own hands, what do we do? We might experience some manner of relief, but we end up making a mess of it. We always will fail. It's always going to fall apart because we aren't omnicompetent. We don't have the power in and of ourselves to fix what is broken in us and in our world. We need rescue. And the Lord holds out rescue. David is saying, taste and see. Taste and see this sunset. Experience this goodness. Don't miss out because of your pride. Don't miss out because of your fear. Don't miss out because of your self-sufficiency. No, cry out to the Lord. Walk in the fear of the Lord and experience his rescue. So let me ask again, are you tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? In the trials that you are experiencing, whether it is a trial in your work, whether it is a trial in your marriage, in your parenting, in relationships, maybe you're, you're facing chronic illness and pain, whatever it may be, maybe there's opposition because you're taking a stand for Jesus, whatever it may be, are you tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? Are you walking in the fear of the Lord? Are you crying out and depending upon him? Are you turning from evil? Are you turning from the temptations to grab control or to lash out in anger or whatever evil thing that might be right there telling you, hey, if you do this thing, you're going to experience some relief? Are you turning from that evil and turning to the Lord? And here's what we, we need to be honest about, church. Like, there is a sense in which this is all of our stories. There's a sense in which we are all guilty of rejecting the goodness of God. And as Psalm 34 makes it very clear, for those who outright refuse to walk in the fear of the Lord, those who continue in rebellion against God, there, there's warning. The Lord is set against those who do evil, David writes in verse 16. Then in verse 21, he writes, evil brings death to the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be punished. Look, our evil, our rebellion deserves punishment. Like we have broken the shalom that God established when he made this earth. We have inserted sin and chaos and pain and evil into this world. And we're guilty before a holy God. We deserve judgment. In and of ourselves, 
We are not righteous. In and of ourselves, we reject God. None of us walk in the fear of the Lord in and of ourselves. No, our hearts are turned away from God. But the good news that we find in Psalm 34 is that God is gracious and merciful, that there is redemption to be found for those of us who rebelled against God, for those of us who want to walk in self-sufficiency, for those of us who think that we can control our own lives. Verse 22 tells us that the Lord redeems the life of his servants and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. There is great hope here for us, church, because the first place you and I need rescue is from our sin and our rebellion. We need to be rescued from our sin and our rebellion in the ways that we have rejected the fear of the Lord, the ways we have rejected God's goodness, the ways we have walked in evil, the ways we have walked in pride. And the good news for us is that the rescue, the redemption that is offered to us in Psalm 34 comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a fascinating connection to Christ in this psalm. This is what we read in verses 19 through 22. David writes, One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. So there's some great poetic language here that, that David uses to talk about God's care for his people. Not one of their bones will be broken. He's just talking about this holistic care and protection that God gives to his servants, to his people. But, but here's what we have to recognize. While the truth is literal, God cares for us and protects us and rescues us, the imagery is not literal, it's poetic. Because how many of you have broken a bone since you've been a Christian? Okay, we break our bones, okay? The, the imagery here is poetic. However, however, there is a moment in Scripture where it's not poetic but literal. In John 15, John is talking about Jesus, excuse me, 19. John is talking about Jesus on the cross, and after he dies, what was normal for the Romans to do, to sort of check to see if a person had died, was to, to break their legs, and so they would fall and suffocate, and just sort of, we got to make sure he's dead. But when they go up to Jesus, they notice he's already dead, and they don't break his bones. And John quotes Psalm 34 and says, not one of his bones was broken. So this imagery becomes prophetic about Jesus. Now, two things going on here. In one hand, his bone not, bones not being broken points to Jesus as the perfect Passover lamb. Because as we saw in Exodus, if you remember from our study of Exodus, in the Passover, one of the requirements is not any bones were to be broken in the lamb. And so it points to Jesus being the Passover lamb. But what does it also do in this oh-so-subtle, beautifully poetic way? It signals this. God has not abandoned Jesus that God still has Jesus in his hand. Though he's been crucified, though he's been handed over to evil men and evil spiritual for forces, though he has been struck dead, God has not abandoned him. God is still watching over him. Three days later, Jesus gets out of the grave. Jesus Christ, the truly righteous one, the one who cried out to God when he was being afflicted, is the one God did not abandon, but rather raised him to life. And here's the good news of the gospel, friends, that for you and I, who are not righteous, who rebel against God, when we take refuge in Christ, we experience salvation. The righteousness that is Christ becomes our righteousness. 
Through his life, death, and resurrection, we're forgiven of all our sins. We're set free from all of our sins. We have new life. We are rescued in the deepest, most profound way that we need rescue. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus also rescues us from the evil of this world. On the cross, Jesus defeated every evil ruler, both physical and spiritual. And in his victory, we stand in victory. Yes, we still have to fight. Yes, we can still experience affliction. But the victory has been won through Christ. And one day, evil will be put away with forever. Death will be ended forever. All those things that afflict us now, we are going to be victorious over in Christ. This is the refuge we have when we run to Jesus. And friends, this is what it means to fear the Lord. Turning from our sin, turning from our evil, turning from our self-sufficiency, and turning to Christ. Running to the one who has made provision for us. And so here is the great hope we have, friends. Here's the great rescue story that we have in Jesus that Psalm 34 points us to. That in turning to Christ, in turning to Christ, we experience rescue. In turning to Christ, in fearing the Lord, we experience rescue from our sin, rescue from judgment, rescue from the power of evil, rescue from the suffering and the affliction of this world. And, and as we experience suffering and affliction in this world, we have the power of God in our lives with us, strengthening us, empowering us, surrounding us and encamping us. And yes, hard things come, difficult things come. But in the midst of all that, God is with us. God is with us, watching over us as we confess this morning. Nothing can happen to us outside the sovereign plan of God. And all things work together for our good. That's the rescue we experience when we turn to Christ, when we cry out to God, when we look to Jesus for our rescue. And so, church, let me encourage you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Rather than walking in self-sufficiency, rather than walking in pride, rather than trying to control your life and try to resolve all the problems yourself, look to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Walk in the fear of the Lord. Turn from evil and turn towards good. Trust God in all of that. Believe that his power is for you and with you. That he, he will rescue, he will redeem. His power will be at work even when it seems like he is far off. He is with you. And listen, here's the good news. Like, there are so many stories of rescue in this room. Like, like what an amazing aspect to be part of a community that can testify just as David testified and can say, hey, I want you to celebrate with me. And this really is the ultimate goal, goal for us, church. The ultimate goal is not just that we individually would experience the rescue of God and sort of just go, hey, that was cool. I'm glad that happened. Let me, let me praise God myself. No, we want to bring everybody into that. We want to be a community that celebrates together, a community that praises God together. We can say, hey, your story of rescue, I'm going to celebrate that too. My story of rescue, we're going to celebrate that too. So there is a community here celebrating, boasting, exalting, glorifying, worshiping God for rescue after rescue after rescue after rescue after rescue. That is powerful, church. That is a powerful testimony to this world when they see a bunch of people who are celebrating not just the grace of God in their own lives, but the grace of God in each other's life. Well, we're all marveling at God's faithfulness to us as an entire community. So where David starts, let that be the place that we ultimately shoot for, a community that collectively celebrates each other's rescue story. 
a community that continues to encourage one another, turn from the self-sufficiency, turn from the pride, turn from trying to control your own life and seek the Lord because the Lord rescues those who fear him.